You know what, this is going to give me an excuse to take my coat off. I thought it was going to be cool enough to wear it, but it's still a little muggy in here. All right. Now that that distraction is out of the way, we can think about this passage. I was starting to say that uh, two of my favorite stories um, from history have to do with explorers and um, kind of expeditions into the unknown. One is Lewis and Clark. Uh, in the early 1800s, being commissioned by Thomas Jefferson to go to the West. And I've read the stories, I've watched the Ken Burns documentary. And the other is uh, Shackleton, Ernest Shackleton, who took an expedition on the ship Endurance to the, uh, to the South Pole and was stranded there because he got lodged in ice but, and eventually rescued uh, his whole crew without any death. Now, Lee and I have our 25th anniversary uh, next September, and so probably we're going to retrace one of those journeys because I like them so much, either Lewis and Clark or Shackleton. I, I mean, probably leaning towards the West rather than the South Pole. But uh, the point is that both of those stories are so familiar to me. I've read several books on both of those expeditions, watched documentaries, watched reenactments. And so it would be very difficult for me to hear something new in either of those stories because I've just, I, I mean, it, it would be possible but it's also easy to be so familiar with something that when it comes, we just kind of say, oh, I know everything about that. I don't think that could be more true than with our story today, the Good Samaritan. Because we come to it and you say, okay, I mean, we've heard and taught flannel graph stories about this, and we've taken the, we've taken the bloody man you know, off and put him on the donkey, and we've ridden him into town. And, and we usually come to the conclusion that the story of the Good Samaritan is teaching us to be kind to people that are hurting. And even though that's true, that's not what the parable of the Good Samaritan is about. So I want you to dismiss that. It, it, yes, the Bible teaches us to help the hurting, and, and, and in fact, the Good Samaritan has kind of become a euphemism for people who help people fix their flat tires on the side of the road now. Right? Let's be a Good Samaritan by helping someone in need. And so... Don't leave today thinking, okay, I learned today that I need to help people in need. Now, I'm not telling you we shouldn't help people in need, but that's not the point of the Good Samaritan. So even though we've heard this many, many times, let's try to readjust what exactly Jesus told this parable for. Okay, so before we get into that, I wanted you to understand that the main point of the story is not to help the needy. It's something else, and I'll try to help us uncover what that is. Before we begin, I want to make four opening observations, four opening observations, and they come in pairs of two. The first is, and we've already read the passage, so that's why we're not going to do it again, and you're familiar with it. We'll look at it, so your Bibles are open and ready to glance at it. But we start with a right assumption and a wrong assumption. Okay, that's our first pair of four. So, I mean, we're going to have a pair of two and a pair of two, so here's our first pair of two. A right assumption and a wrong assumption in the man's question of Jesus. Okay, in the man's question of Jesus, he makes a right assumption and a wrong assumption. The right assumption is, let's, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit. Our, our, we have a little lower numbers here. Let's, let's, uh, you won't come through, but I'll, I'll repeat your answer. What is his right assumption in the question? He's making a right assumption as he asks the question. What is that right assumption? The, okay, in the story. When the guy stands up and asks the question of Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
in that question, inherently, there's a right assumption. What is the right assumption? Uh, the right assumption is that there is eternal life. Okay, the right assumption is there. You actually said the wrong assumption. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll, we'll clarify, but I'll come to that in just a second. Okay, you keep, you keep thinking on that. The right assumption is this. He believes in immortality. He believes in immortality. Um, the man's question implies what the Jews all believed is that there is life after death. Uh, Erwin Lutzer wrote a book, and I've read it, and it's a good book. Uh, what happens, I think it's what happens 30 seconds after you die. It might be 10 seconds after you die, but it, it's like what happens after you die. Uh, what immediately is experienced by John McCain the minute his soul departs his, his body? Let me tell you this, if he did not know the Lord, he's going to wish he was back in a, in, a concert, in a prison camp in Vietnam. Because the, the torture that awaits unbelievers is unspeakable. We don't know for sure, but if an unbeliever immediately goes uh, in, away from the presence of God, they face uh, eternal punishment. Now, our postmodern, natural, humanistic, evolutionary society has begun to erode that teaching that there is life after death so that when we go to people with the gospel, we can't assume that they automatically believe that there's something after this life. I would, I would say that 75, 100 years ago, you could go to almost anybody and they'd believe there's something after. They may have the wrong idea about how to achieve eternal life or how to receive it, but it's not as commonly thought as before. It's not commonly thought like it was here. In fact, I saw a news program, I just happened to be flipping through the channels, it was one of these uh, where they, I don't remember what it was, but they were interviewing someone who had had a near-death experience. We've seen all those, right? And we always hear about the tunnel and the light, and this is kind of a new phenomenon too, because in the past, I mean, 100 years ago, you had a heart attack, I don't know when CPR was invented, was it invented within 100 years? I mean, let's say 100, 200 years ago, if you died, no, nobody understood how to pump your chest and bring you back is kind of what they call it. We're going to resuscitate them. Now that we have that, we kind of have this, well, the heart stopped. Were they dead? And so the idea that we have these, quote, near-death experiences is all fooey because the Scripture clearly tells us that you die once, and the death is when the soul leaves the body. No doctor can determine that. Now, you could be hooked up to machines, and you're brain dead, and your heart dead. You stop breathing. But we don't know that exact moment when the soul leaves the body. That is death, separation. Satan would like everyone to believe that this life is all there is. Remember last Sunday night when we talked about the temptations that he used in, of Christ and throughout the scripture, one of those temptations was live for now. Don't, don't worry about what is to come. 1 Corinthians 15.32, this was commonly thought. Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. <clears throat> Get all in this life that you can because there is nothing else coming. But God has given us revelation that this life is not the end. And you don't need the scripture to have that revelation. You understand what I'm saying? People in their own hearts and consciences have a God-given uh, desire or knowledge that there is more to this life. And I can prove that from Ecclesiastes 3.11. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says God has put eternity in our hearts. And that word put means either the desire or the awareness. 
So it's my belief that people who don't believe in the afterlife at all, now we have people who don't believe in the correct way or the heaven or hell or people who think they all get to heaven, but we now have people who think there's nothing. You go into the ground and you're gone. You're, you're, just, you're in this unconscious state. You, you know, so you better enjoy these 70 years. Now people who believe that, why would they ever go to work? Unless it's to get money to spend on their own, right? You know what I'm saying? If, if this was all you had, I mean, wouldn't you spend every waking moment in a hedonistic way, self-satisfying way? I mean, why would anyone discipline themselves to work? Why would anyone you know, go into the military? Why would anyone give a life of, you know, it makes no sense. So people must, as Romans 1 says, suppress that truth. In other words, you don't need to go to someone nearby and say, well, Scripture tells us that there's life after death, even though Scripture does tell us that. They should have a conscious awareness of it themselves. Now, Scripture does tell us this, Job 19, 26, 27, Psalm 16, 11, Daniel 7, verse 18, and the verse I referenced earlier, Hebrews 9, 27, which says, it is appointed unto man to die once, and then after that comes the judgment. In fact, really, this life can be summarized as a dream and eternity can be summarized as the moment we wake up because this is so fleeting and short and brief and eternity is forever. <clears throat> there's an old, uh, <coughs> excuse me, there's an old uh, evangelistic video that, that I'm not sure if I would use now, but, but 20 years ago or so we were given it. It's called Somewhere Forever. Just the idea that everyone who lives you see that? Will, will exist somewhere forever. When a person dies, they will either go to heaven, and I like it better this way, into the presence of God forever, or they'll go to hell, and I like it better this way, away from the presence of God forever. And the two passages that summarize this are John 14, right? Go into the presence of God forever. Where I am, you will be. Where I am, uh, how's it go? And... <laughs> Uh, in my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again, that where I am, you may be also. The, the point is that there is a togetherness with Christ. You go into his presence forever. Hell, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, you go away from his presence. You're cast away from the presence of God forever. And that is what happens 30 seconds after you die. You either go into the presence of God or away from it. So even though the lawyer had this right assumption, he also had a wrong assumption. His right assumption is that there is immortality. His wrong assumption, and this is just kind of wordplay like you were saying, Tony, is that you had to do something to get it. You had to do something to get it. What shall I do? In fact, the original can be read this way. Having done what will I inherit eternal life? You see how that makes it more clear? Having done what will I inherit eternal life? Like, what activity... Now, we all understand we have to do something, which is receive Christ, but that's not the way he meant it. What human work, having done what human work, will I inherit eternal life? In fact, even think about the oxymoron of the words. Look at the words. Do inherit. You, you don't inherit something by doing something, right? He should have said, doing what will I what would be a better word to put there in his mind? Doing what will I earn eternal life? Exactly. Right? Not, not what, 
how, can, how will you give it to me? The, the words themselves are, are incongruent, if that's the right word. And much of the world believes this false assumption too. So if Satan can't fool people into thinking that there is no afterlife, he fools them into thinking that you do something to go to the right direction. Okay? Do you remember the first time you understood the reality of this? Do you, do you remember the first time you understood the reality of a, of a separation from God forever? I, I can remember my, my uh, sitting down at First Baptist Romeo. <clears throat> I remember where I was sitting, and I remember the feeling of dread that came over me. I remember sitting at our table afterwards. I don't know if I'm remembering this all right because they're just kind of fuzzy memories. I may have been 10 or 11. And I remember looking at my parents and saying, Maybe, maybe they sensed I was afraid, and maybe mom would remember this differently, but I remember mom saying, I think he just wants to be sure he's not going to hell, or something to that effect. And that was exactly right. Do you remember that feeling that came on you? Well, that's a great feeling, right? That's the feeling of conviction. But, but sometimes when people get that feeling of conviction, their first reaction is to say, okay, what do I need to do? What, what, what work do I need to do? And that is a wrong assumption. If I can do good, then heaven is my reward. Then, in a sense, we say earn, in a sense, then God owes me for something that I did. This is the wrong assumption. God is not going to be any man's debtor. God is not going to be a, an OE to anybody. Right? So, in other words, God looking at it and kind of keeping a chart like Santa Claus making a list, checking it twice. And if you're naughty, you go to hell. But if you're nice, you go to heaven. This is the world's thinking, right? If, they don't, if, if, if Satan can't trick them into believing that there is no afterlife, at least he will trick them into thinking you know, that there is a way to achieve it. Okay, so we have a, good, a right assumption and a wrong assumption. Let's do the other pair now. It's a good question, but a bad motive. A good question, but a bad motive. Of course, the question is great. Now, even with the caveat of saying, uh, what shall I do, it's still a good question because it's something that should be asked by every one of us, the idea of how can I have eternal life? Even though he's asking it in the wrong way, it's still a good question. Um, we must be right about this, qu this question. Isn't it astonishing that this question isn't asked more? I guess I thought about this studying this. I, I almost can't believe that we don't have people knocking on the door throughout the week asking this question. You know what I'm saying? Like, people who, I mean, I think we, many of, maybe, maybe certain of us are more in tune with these thoughts than others, but I mean, there's a, when I run, <clears throat> I do a three-mile run, I haven't done it in a while, but I do a three-mile run around our uh, not around our property, but you know, up the road, down the road. And as you come down one other road, there's a, there's a really small cemetery there. It strikes me every time. You know, there, there, there's people. And anytime I go by a cemetery, I'm struck by the afterlife, aren't you? I think most people... So, so you have all these people that drive by the signs at rest this week, right? You see these at rest, so-and-so. And you'd think people would be overwhelmed, wouldn't you? They'd be overwhelmed because God has placed this eternity in their hearts. They realize they're going to live forever somewhere. You'd think there would be a parade of people barging down this door asking this question, right? You'd think they would just be uh, so desperate to know the answer. It never happens. It never happens. People are content 
in their own self-deception. And even when the question is asked right by this guy, he asks it with the wrong motives. Do you see it? Look at verse number 25. He did it to put the Lord to the test. Now, some people in the books I read said, well, this, isn't, this is just seeing if he knows the answer. I, I don't agree. It's hard to see this in any other way than being negative. Remember, I told you last week that you might want to draw a line from this back to verse number uh, 21, where Jesus is explaining gospel joy, and he thanks the Lord that he hides this truth from the wise, from people who aren't humble. And I think this man may have heard that, or at least he maybe have heard Jesus teaching in this way, and he became offended because he's a lawyer. That means he's one who studied the Old Testament scriptures and was very familiar with it and knew what it said and say, how are you going to say that God is hiding truth from me? I am one of those wise. And I think even in this context, when he stands up, I think that's confrontational. I may be wrong because other people says, well, he uses the proper form of address. He says, teacher. I can almost hear that dripping with sarcasm. And I'm, again, I'm over here. I'm, I'm just guessing. But I see him standing up saying, teacher. You know, and, and he's saying, put him to the test. You know, he, he's trying to trap him here. To me, there's no question. I think he's being arrogant and cocky, and we're going to see that in his responses. Okay? Now, that gives us some context. A good assu- right assumption, wrong assumption. There is an afterlife. He, he was going about it the wrong way. He asked the right question, but with the wrong motive. And that gives us context in this very, very familiar parable. Now, let's... I started to say that this parable doesn't teach us to help the needy. Think about the context. Here, here's, how I, here's how I walk through it. I, okay, if you outline it like this, you have a question. You have an initial question. Look, look in your Bibles. Okay, you have an initial question by the, by the scribe or the lawyer. And his question is, what do I have to do to get eternal life? And Jesus answers it with a question. So you have question, then you have question two, and this is Jesus' question. And he turns it back on him and says, well, what does the law say? How do you interpret that? Okay? And then you have the answer from the guy. Love your neighbor as your, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, that's right. And then you have another question, who is my neighbor? And then the parable. Okay, I know that was a lot, but, but the context is, Jesus is actually telling this story in answer to what question? Ultimately, what question is this story answering? How to get eternal life. That's right. That is the starting point of the, of the conversation. Now, you know, he really is answering it to show who the neighbor is, but ultimately, the question that is being answered is, what do I have to do to get eternal life? So the parable is not to give us an example about showing compassion to others. Here it is. The parable is meant... To reveal our own insufficiency, to reveal our own insufficiency, and to trust the gospel of Christ only. Okay? That's the point of the parable. The point of the parable isn't, okay, when you drive home and you see a guy with a flat tire, you've got to stop and help because that's what the Good Samaritan did. Now, you should, but that's not the point of the parable. When Jesus is asked the question about eternal life, he redirects the conversation, he affirms his belief in the law. And he throws it back on the scholar in verse number 26 when he says, what does the law say? The scholar answered from two passages in the Old Testament. He mixed two together. He referenced Deuteronomy 6, which is known as the uh, Jewish Shema, 
which is something they recited every day. The Lord our God is one God. And then this part, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. The totality of yourself, you have this love for God. And then he quotes from Leviticus 19.18 when he says, love your neighbor. Okay, Jesus, what do I have to do to get eternal life? What does the law say, dude? That's in the Message Bible. Jesus says, or the, the man says, I got to love God with my whole self, and I got to love my neighbor. Jesus' reply was? He says, good answer. He says, good answer. Do it, and what? You'll live. Did Jesus agree with the man's answer? This is a trick question. He says, you have answered correctly. Okay? That is something I rarely say in my ninth and 10th grade Bible class at school. You have answered correctly. Normally it's off-the-wall answers. But Jesus agreed. So let me ask you this question. Does the law promise eternal life? Does the law promise eternal life? Does the law offer and promise eternal life? What do you think the answer is? The man asked the question, what do I have to do to get eternal life? Jesus, what does the law tell you about that? It tells me i got to love God with the totality of myself and love my neighbor as myself. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Wait a minute. You will live. What kind of life is Jesus talking about? I would draw an arrow. Verse, the last word of verse 25 is the last word of verse 28. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do this and you will live. Do you think Jesus is talking about something different than eternal life? Of course not. He's answering the context of the question. Do you want to have eternal life? Do this and you will live. Do what? Love God, love your neighbor. So answer the question again. Does the law offer eternal life? The answer is yes, it does. Yes, it does. If you can love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength, and if you can love your neighbor as yourself, and Jesus says, do it, guess what you get? You get eternal life. You get eternal life. Jesus takes two words from the man's question, do and live, and answers it. What the law required was selfless love for God and others with our whole selves. In Matthew, I think it's Matthew 22, it says, when the guy comes and says, what is the greatest commandment to Jesus? What is the greatest commandment? Another trap. He says the same thing. He says, love God and love others. And then it says, on these two commands hang everything else. Everything else hangs on these two. When you think of the Ten Commandments, we had them, we should have saved them, I guess, from Bible school. We had the big blocks and we had the Ten Commandments. You have basically the two tables. You have table number one, which deals with all the commands related to God, right? Don't have any idols, respect his name, honor the Sabbath, uh, no graven images, uh, no bowing down to any other gods. I think I mixed those two up, but you have those four. And the other six, the second table, relate to man. Don't bear false witness, don't commit adultery, don't covet, don't kill, all the rest, right? So you got these two commands. Love God is the one side. Love others is the other side. So these two commands that the man answered with kind of summarize the totality of the moral law. And if you can keep the moral law, guess what? You get eternal life. Now, the problem is, right? The problem is 
Who can do that? Right. And so what we wish we would read in verse, what the number is? I'm sorry, it's so small. Is it 28 where he says, yeah, it's 28. He says, and he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. What should read in verse 28 and a half, it's not there, but what you wish you read is what? The man saying, I can't do that. Have mercy on me. I can't do that. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. Examining our own lives for a minute. Have we loved God with our whole hearts, soul, mind, and strength? Have we shown our neighbor the same intense love and concern we have for ourselves? We can never be saved by keeping the law, but it's not because there is something wrong with the law. It's because there is something wrong with us. We are insufficient, unloving, sinful, and needy. And again, the man's perfect response in verse 28.5, which isn't there, would be, I can't do that, and I've never been able to. He should have fallen on his knees and realized, now the answer to his question, what can I do to inherit eternal life? The answer to the question is, I can do nothing because I'm insufficient in myself. But what would that take? Humility. Instead, he had self-righteousness and pride, and it took over. And I think if the man would have said in verse 28.5, I can't do that, Jesus would have then explained, I can. Right? Jesus would have said, I can. I can perfectly fulfill all the law, and by doing so, by my active obedience to God, I can then be passively obedient on the cross and pay for all your mistakes, sins. Understand? And Jesus could have unveiled the gospel to him. And the reason he didn't say that first is because he knew the man needed to understand his need first. That's the point of the gospel. You've got to understand your need. So, instead of responding right in 28.5, instead of denying himself, he seeks to what? Instead of denying himself, he wants to justify himself. This is, again, why I see it as a confrontation. I see it as he's not asking it sincerely. He attempts to make the commands of God more manageable. He wants to limit it. Because I think what he's realizing is, I can't do all what you're saying So if I can't do what God actually says, can I just do my best? This is what people who want to self-justify say in response to the... Okay, let me me re-say that so it's more clear. When Jesus says at the end of verse 28, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live, the right response, of course, when we all hear that is, I can't do it. I can't do it. Please have mercy. What self-justifiers say is something like, God's demands are unfair and impossible. Or, I know that's the ideal, but... Or, certainly there are limits to that. God doesn't expect perfection. He just expects me to be better than whatever. And that's where Jesus introduces the parable. And again, it's important for us to realize, not to help the needy and hurt, but the context is eternal life. And the question that the man asks is, who is my neighbor? Which is the wrong question to ask. Again, he's trying to limit that. Okay, so, so who are the people you're talking about that i got to love? Because certainly there's a limit on it. If I can put boundaries on it, like if I don't have to love people of a certain race or love people of a certain religion or love pe- people of a certain quality, then, then I can do that. I'll make it more manageable for myself. But the question should, that be, asked, should be asked is, what kind of neighbor am I? And I'm going to show you that in the Scripture. Jesus turns those words. 
Again, the answer is to reveal our insufficiency. So the parable which we're real familiar with is the story of the man who's riding from Jerusalem or, or going from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is a trip of less than 15 miles, but it's a trip of 3,500 feet downhill. In other words, Jericho is 3,500 feet lower in elevation than Jerusalem. And it was a way that was called the bloody way. Because it was a steep and dangerous path with lots of caves and rocks where bandits could hide. And that's exactly what happened in the parable. The man, as he was traveling down that road, according to verse number uh, 30, was beaten and stripped and left for dead. He's in a desperate condition. Derek, I think, pointed out in the one of the weeks I was with him in the Bible study up here on Wednesday night that a lot of people like to allegorize this, right? The good Samaritan is Jesus and the man is us. And, and you know, that's not true because the man isn't, half dead. The man isn't dead, he's half dead. If, if this was a spiritual analogy where Jesus comes and rescues us, we'd be completely dead and Jesus would have to breathe new life in us, not just give us a little medicine to help us. This is not the point to allegorize it and, and, and say, you know, the donkey is whoever in Jerusalem. It, that's ridiculous, okay? It's just a story he's answering to help us understand our insufficiency. In the story, there seems to be hope because a priest and a Levite walk by. A priest who is a godly man and a Levite who is assistant to the priest, very familiar with the Old Testament and the need to love our neighbors. Surely these men would help, and they did not. The reasons for not helping are not given, nor are they important. Maybe they just thought, well, this man is unclean. I can't touch a dead body. Uh, maybe there's danger for myself. If I help, I will also be uh, accosted. And maybe the man's already dead. Again, the reasons don't matter, um, but they failed to show the love that was dis that already discussed by us. And so the unexpected happened, and Jesus introduces this and says, a Samaritan passes by, and we're very familiar with this. In fact, the parable of a good Samaritan would be an oxymoron to the Jews. There wouldn't be no such thing as a good Samaritan. Samaritans were Jews who intermarried with the Assyrians, and they should not have done that. They should have, they, they, by their infidelity and, and unfaithfulness to God, they married uh, Assyrians while they were in captivity, and they, they nurtured what is known as a half-breed, is what they were called. And so they were hated by the Jews. You know that John 4 teaches they had no contact with them, wouldn't even eat off the same cups and, and plates that they would use. And in fact, when the story was being told and the Samaritan came by, probably people thought, well, the Samaritan's just going to finish the guy off. This is what they would think. Okay? Yet this man, we're told, has compassion on him, doing all of the things that we're familiar with, binding up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, etc., even going so far as to pick the man up, put it on his own animal, bring it to the inn, take care of him. And that's not the extent of his care. He also gives money to take care of this person to the innkeeper for whatever is needed. And he says, even if this isn't enough, I will come back and give you more until the man is well. Now the conclusion of the story, and we're just about moving to the end here, Jesus then asks the question, and I want you to notice the change in Jesus' terminology. Okay, Back to verse 27. Uh, 20, Excuse me, verse 20, the numbers are so small, I should have my glasses on. 29, wanted to justify himself saying, who is my neighbor? And look at Jesus' question in verse 36, who proved to be a neighbor. Okay, see the difference? The question is not, who is my neighbor? In other words, who are the people that I have to do what you're saying to? The question is, it's more introspective, right? What kind of neighbor am I? 
who proved to be a neighbor, who is doing what I told you to do earlier, right? You said in verse 27, love your neighbor as yourself. And I said, that is the correct answer. Who in the story is doing that? Right? Who, who is the example in the story that is doing what I told you? And the guy can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. You see that? He says the one. He's just so arrogant. He hates that kind of person. He says the one who showed mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. And then, sadly, there is no verse 37.5. Because in verse 37.5, the guy again, he's given a second chance to say, there's no way I can do that. Please have mercy on me. In 28.5, which doesn't exist, and 37.5, which doesn't exist, the man had two opportunities to admit his own insufficiency to do what was required to inherit eternal life. Are you catching the weight of that? Here's a guy that stood before the Lord, asked him the right question, had the wrong motives, had the right assumption, and Jesus gave him the correct answer, and the man walked away from it because he was too proud to say, I can't do what the law requires. This is what salvation is, and this is what our gospel message should be, and this is what it is to you if you're unsaved. The law should just come up against us and it should just, the law says, you want eternal life, all you got to do that is do this. And when we come up against it, we realize we cannot do it. And the example that Jesus gives is such an over-the-top example, right? This is the kind of love that's required. First of all, you do it to a hated enemy, right? What good is it if you just love those who love you? You got to do it to your hated enemy, and you got to do it to the full extent. Right? You've got you to give of yourself. You've got to give of your money. You've got to give of your time. You've got to be, in, in a sense, risky in the type of love you share because this man could have also come across the same type of danger. But it doesn't matter because that's the type of love you have to have. There is no limit to it. There is no manageable law for you, Jesus is saying to the man. And when he says, go and do likewise, and if in verse 37.5 the guy said, I can't, Jesus would then again say... I, I will for you. I will for you. And that is what the gospel is. Praise God. Isn't that praise God? You, you say to God, I can't do, I can't do this. Right? You, you, I hope you've come to that point. I cannot do what you say. You, know, you, go, to, you go to the homes of people and, 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 and you talk to your friends and they try to be good people and you just wish you could say, you can't do that. But until they come to that point, they can never have the gospel. Sometimes we dangle out the gospel to people and this is, I've tried to remind us of this all the time, we cannot use heaven like the carrot of the, you know, that they can just come get because everybody will want the carrot. They must, they must realize they don't get the carrot. That Christ earned it for them. That they cannot do anything to deserve it. They must humbly admit their own sinfulness and insufficiency before they can have eternal life. And that's the key to getting it. Is that, is that humility and repentance that says, I can't, but you did in my place. Right? We talked about this when we talked about the four R's of the gospel. We have a relationship. We have rebellion. We have uh, 
uh, I can't remember the other two at this point, redemption and, and I don't know, one other, repentance, repentance and redemption. But this first one, relationship, uh, is that accountability that every person has before God. When I was born, when I was conceived and then born, I have this, I have this personal responsibility to a holy God to do everything right, to love God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love everyone just like I love myself. And I have failed every day of my life to do that. And if I just try to do better, first of all, I could never achieve the perfection that Jesus is talking about here, but if I just tried to do better, how would it wipe away all my other failures? See what I'm saying? So at the moment of my life, when I felt that conviction, and I, and I realized I can't do that, and I deserve, 2 Thessalonians 1, to be set, sent away from the presence of God forever, and I cry out to God and I say, I can't, will you have mercy? I mean, this is the glory of the gospel that God says, yes, I will save you. I've done it for you. Isn't that, ama- isn't that amazing? That's just such a precious truth. That salvation is not earned, it's just granted when all we do is repent and recognize our own insufficiency. The love that we are supposed to show God and others is supposed to be continuous, perfect, and on every occasion. And the point of that is that we can't. This is the, this is the thing about these familiar stories. We must plead for mercy and forgiveness for our own insufficiency. Now, if you never have done that, I mean, I look around and I've heard almost everybody's testimony, maybe not some of the children, but man, the urgent need of your life today is to say to God, I can't do, I can't do what you're telling me to do. So don't be like the scribe here who says, he doesn't say anything. The sad point of the story is there is no rest of the story. He just goes and you just got to assume that he never did this. And then the goal is to take this message of the gospel. Don't you love the way Jesus shares the gospel? So often we're so tempted to just offer people the blessings of salvation without helping them feel the burden of their sin. And this is what needs to be felt by the lost. They need to, you know, when people say they are good people, what what our point is we need to say is point them to stories like this and point them to the word which will have you perfectly, continuously, totally kept the laws of God? Totally? Never? Never had a problem? And once they fully admit that, then we pray that the Holy Spirit would convict their hearts and life. That's the message we have for Romeo. That's the only message we have for Romeo, right? It's not a message of try harder, do better, you know, turn over a new leaf. It is complete and total repentance and admit that we are insufficient of ourselves and that Christ alone is our Savior. And the glory of the gospel is that he, he will. And he did. He saved me. And I know he saved many of you. And we praise him for that today. Let's thank him. Okay, Father, we are so grateful for our time in your word today. And a reminder here of our own insufficiency. We're just humbled by it, God. That I'm just humbled that I can open your word and share this message only because Christ has saved me. I'm so grateful to know that the moment after I close my eyes in death, I will be in your presence forever. Not because I earned it or I did it. I was a pastor. I was a good person. But because you in your sovereign grace saved me. And we all admit today, God, our own insufficiency. We once again ask forgiveness of our sins and pray that you would give us a heart for the lost and and a real understanding of how to share the gospel with them in the same way Christ did. And then we pray for soft-hearted, humble people to come across 
unlike this man who was so proud and arrogant and tried to limit the demands of God. May we find that harvest so plentiful and help us to be the faithful laborers as we go out into your fields and share the gospel. Thanks for our time together in your word today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.